You know, if there's ever anything that I wish I could witness and, and go back, it would be, one, the creation account. I would go all the way back and see God speaking the world into existence, all these, like, um, you know, just things just growing out of nothing. But to be honest, one of the things I would like to try is I would go back and try this wine because supposedly it's the best wine ever. This is a divine wine, and uh, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't like wine, and so I would want to try Jesus wine, you know what I mean? Um, but just a quick background into our story. Uh, if you remember last week, as we're continuing on in this series of Gospel of John, last week we looked at how Philip and Nathaniel uh, met Jesus, and of course they became disciples. Um, and now we're actually entering into a section from chapter 2 to chapter 12, and it's often labeled as the Book of Glory. Okay, So uh, the reason why it's called the Book of Glory is because Jesus is continuing to reveal his glory publicly in ministry through signs, works, and his words, through his preaching and teachings. And so Jesus' uh, glory is now being revealed to the public ministry, and we're going to see the first sign being revealed at a wedding in Cana. And so, uh, as we begin our story, we're about to jump into a problem that I think can be very relatable to us. Um, maybe not exactly this wine story, but I think every one of us has a certain wine that might have run out in our lives. Okay, So, let's look at our problem. The problem is going to be um, in verses 1 through 3. The problem is this. There is no wine, and there is worry, stress, and chaos. There's panic ensuing. And I think this is something we've all encountered in our lives. Some type of stressful situation, some type of worry or panic. This is what it says in verses 1 to 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Um... In this story, it immediately starts off with, on the third day. What does that mean? Uh, it means the third day since Nathaniel and Philip have met Jesus. And so it's been two days since they've met Jesus. And um, one of the things we just immediately note here in John's writing is how meticulous and how specific he is in terms of documenting all the details. And it's very interesting because he notes that it's the third day, um, so there's two days later, and then... On top of that, we know that Cana is actually Nathaniel's hometown. So in this two-day span, Nathaniel's hanging out with Jesus. He's following him, and they end up going to his hometown. We don't know what they're doing, uh, what they've done in those two days, and I'm sure there's a lot of awesome teaching, a lot of maybe great fellowship, uh, fun things that they did together. Um, but we don't know. But the point is, um, we don't have to know. And it actually confirms something that John writes later on in John chapter 21, verse 25. He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Um, the fact is this. John could have wrote so much. He could have detailed every single little thing that Jesus did uh, in this world, in his public ministry or just private ministry. Um, but if he did... Uh, John would have ran out of probably paper to write on. Um, there just was not enough space. And so he's very selective in terms of what he wants to share with us. And we've learned that the purpose of John's writing is what? The purpose of this gospel is that p- 
people would believe. So everything John is doing is so that uh, whatever is written would point people to hopefully believe in Jesus Christ. And now he immediately just wants to jump into this wedding story, the first sign that Jesus does publicly. So what do we see? We see that Jesus, his mom, and his disciples, they're invited to this wedding. They're all there. Uh, His mom was already there, and Jesus and his disciples joined. Um, And it's very likely that this was actually a close, maybe family member or a friend, someone that they knew well, uh, which is why they're all invited. But secondly, the fact that his mom is so heavily involved and is so concerned about wine being run out, it's very likely that she was possibly um, very involved with this wedding, whether it was with the catering or maybe helping out with uh, the beverages or whatever, she is involved in some capacity or finds some responsibility or some weight to it that she cares deeply about this couple that's getting married, right? And so we jump into our problem. In verse 3, Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And to be honest, Jesus probably already knows this. He's, he's all-knowing, right? And uh, of course, later on in his response, we kind of get a sense that really knows this and it's almost like why are you telling me this but she comes to him as if it's a huge problem let me tell you it's a big problem why is this a big deal why is running out of wine such a big deal at a wedding well culturally weddings could be as long as an entire week okay it's not just a single day uh, wedding Um, you know i got married last august and to be honest just one day was enough. You know, if we had to do uh, more than one day, oh man, I, that, that's one thing I never want to redo is just the whole planning process. That, that was a lot of work. But they needed to prepare upwards to a week. All the food, all the drinks. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of time preparation. And guess who that responsibility fell on? It actually fell on the bridegroom. The, the, the male. The, the, the husband to be, to be married. And it was on his family, and he needed to prepare all of this. And so, why is this such a big deal then? It's a big deal because socially, their culture was an honor and shame culture. Um, it, it's actually very similar to Asian culture. So if you don't know what honor and shame is, think of back on maybe your first generation parents or your grandparents. But um, it, it, it's such an honor and shame thing. It's a... Uh, uh, if you don't prepare all these things, you can actually be greatly shamed. It's not just you, but your entire family could be shamed. Um, it's actually so severe that if anyone uh, came to the wedding and the wine ran out or food ran out, it was such a serious thing that if they wanted to, they can actually take legal actions against the married couple. Be like, you know what? You irresponsible person. Because gift giving was a huge thing. They would give these large gifts and they felt like, where's my return? And so you could actually take legal actions against a couple for not being prepared. But more than that, you can hear almost the potential shame being gossiped about the couple that was not prepared. This is, uh, I want to just kind of illustrate what honor and shame culture kind of looks like. What people might potentially say about this couple is, Look at them. See him? He can't prepare. If he can't prepare this wine, if he can't plan this out, he's not ready to start a family. You think he can lead his wife? Oh, 
their family, they're doomed. And that's the type of thing that people will say. Oh, it's not just him. Oh, his parents. Oh my gosh, that's, that's a reflection of their parenting. And that's the shame, honor and shame culture. Another thing that might help maybe our younger youth students understand, if you've watched the movie Mulan, uh, right? Asian culture, Chinese culture, um, Asian culture, very heavy on honor and shame. If you remember in the very beginning of the movie, Mulan is getting prepared to meet a matchmaker, right? And this matchmaker is trying to uh, prepare Mulan to potentially get married to the prince, right? And so, of course, they're like getting her all pretty, whatever, all prepared. And they're like, here's the luck, here's the lucky cricket, here's like this, like whatever, all this stuff. And they're singing this song. You'll bring honor, you'll bring honor, you'll bring honor to us all. Right? It's this idea that if you get chosen, thank you, thank you. If you get chosen as the lucky bride, you're going to not just be honored yourself with this lovely prince. Like, wow, what a great honor that is to be basically the, the, the queen or whatever, the, the princess. But you're going to bring honor to your family, to your friends, to everyone that knows you. It, it brings us honor. So, so you better get chosen. What a great honor that is. However, of course, we see in this movie that Mulan totally blows it. Right? The cricket jumps out of her uh, little cage, jumps in the matchmaker's like dress. Uh, a, lot, a lot of bad things happen, right? She like dumps the tea all over her face because her butt catches on fire. Uh, and this matchmaker at the end, what does she say to her? You're a disgrace, right? You'll never bring honor to your family. Your shame. Shame on you and the Fa family, right? Every one of you guys are shameful. And we see all throughout this movie, it's all about shame, right? Later on, they find out Mulan's a girl. It's like, what? Shame on you and your entire family, right? How dare you, like, whatever, fight in this army. Honor and shame. It's a very heavy thing in this Jewish culture. This is why it's a big deal. This couple is in a lot of trouble right now. The wine is out. Uh, there's probably some murmurs like, can I get some more wine? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, one second, one second. And Mary comes up to Jesus and says, we got a problem. There's no more wine. This is a very, very serious problem. Um, and so, uh, and, and just to bring a quick clarification, by the way, because um, I know we're putting such a heavy emphasis on wine, to bring clarification about even the quality of wine, it's actually a lot, uh, lot more dilu- uh, diluted than what our wine is today. It's not as strong. Uh, scholars say that it's actually probably between one-third to one-tenth the strength of our wine today. So it's a lot more watered down. And if you were to compare it, it's probably about the strength of like a standard beer. Okay, um, So it's not as strong, and you know people are not you know just getting crazy drunk at this wedding. Um, and so, through all of this, Mary sees this situation. She's seeing it getting chaotic. She almost sees a writing on the wall for this couple. They're doomed. And she's just so desperate for help. What can I do to help? I mean, if I don't do anything, I mean, man, I, I, the worst that can happen is this whole community takes legal actions on them. Who knows? Shames them. Maybe wants to, like, beat them. Whatever, like, it's not good for them. And so who does she look for to help? Who other than her son, who's the Messiah, Jesus, who is able to help her? That's her only avenue of help. 
She has no other options. It's not like they had BevMo or Costco down the street. She can be like, we're out of wine. Let me just go down the street. I'll be back in 30 minutes. They don't have the privilege. It takes uh, days or months for for wine to be uh, fermented. This is not like you can just be like, hey, real quick, let's get some grapes and just squish it. It just becomes grape juice. It is not wine. It's not the same. They're doomed. They're, They're completely helpless. And likewise... I think we've all gone through a similar situation in our lives where we've definitely felt helpless, where we felt like, man, I have, there is nothing I can do in my situation, and I am completely helpless. What can I do? And we look to the one who is able, who is the only one that's able to help us in our predicament. It is God. And we've all felt this at one point in our lives. And I, I think when I see some of our emails, I think it's very indicative that we've gone through situations like this. Family members being sick. Maybe finances being difficult. There's all uh, sorts of things that we all go through where we are stressed out to the point of oh, we don't know what to do. We're so desperate for help. So I want to ask you, have you ever worried about something that it consumed you? Or... Is your wine run out? You see, that is the problem that we're facing. Is we've all faced a situation where the, the wine is gone in our wedding, in our personal lives. This might be the wine of job security. This might be the wine of family health, the wine of finances, the wine of friendships. And you've lost control. You've felt helpless to do anything. And so how can we as believers overcome worry? That's the question I want us to look at. And I think... As we look at our passage, we're going to see that there's four things in this passage that I believe shows and helps guide us in overcoming worrying or stressful situations. Um, so again, how can believers overcome worrying? The first thing is this. Um, oh, oops. Is approach God in prayer that lines up with his will. Okay. If you look at verse 4, it says this. And Jesus said to her, woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, Real quickly before we just kind of dissect or just kind of go into our main point here about approaching God in prayer that lines up with God's will. We've noticed in verse 3 that Mary already approached Jesus, right? She's so desperate for help. But there's something that's different um, that she does that we, uh, we aren't supposed to do. Mary approaches Jesus, but she doesn't do it According to his will. She doesn't do it in a manner that is pleasing unto him. And so when Jesus responds to his mom, he says this word, woman. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I would never address my mom or any woman with the word woman, right? But let's take a real quick uh, zoom out here because in our English language, uh, it's so easy to misread things. Um, actually, th- through my wife, I've learned that texting could be so dangerous. I- I've actually learned to use emoticons because of her. She's like, you need to stop using just a sentence and a period. It's like sentence, happy face, and then, then I know you're not stressed out. And so, uh, Likewise, when we read scripture, it's so easy to misread and to just be like, whoa, Jesus just comes up like woman, right? Uh, no, it, that's actually not the tone. It's not this respectful what he's saying actually the greek word that he's using is the word uh gunai which i know doesn't sound even better but it's something between courteous and an endearing of a term and so what it's actually very comparable to is the word ma'am in our language right we approach 
woman respectfully with that word ma'am. And I, I know some people might actually be offended by being called ma'am. But the um, point is this. Jesus is not like really offensive towards his mom. Okay, So don't, don't think that. I think a lot of people misread that. Um, and, and just to kind of show even further in John chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus actually uses the same word when he's on the cross. And he refers to his mom as Gunai again. So uh, maybe you might think that's like a disrespectful way. He's like dying, like, ah, oh, woman, right? But, but no, that's not what he means. It's, again, it's a term of endearment towards his mom. And so he then says this, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is Jesus doing here? He's actually giving her a slight rebuke. He's actually putting his own mom in her rightful place. And he's correcting her in terms of the way she approaches him and wants to clarify, this is not how you approach me. What is he actually really uh, saying? He's saying, don't tell me what to do regarding my earthly ministry. That's really reading in in between the lines. He's ultimately saying, I follow not you, mom, but my heavenly father. How do I know this? Because he talks about this hour not coming yet. My hour has not yet come. And you aren't the one to tell me. My Father in heaven tells me my hour is coming. What is this hour? It is the hour of his death and his resurrection. And over and over again, throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the Gospels, we see whenever Jesus is talking about his hour coming, it's referring to his death on the cross. Jesus sees it and he says, this is not my time yet. And ultimately, he's letting her know, you aren't in control of my time. God is. You see, when it comes to comparing the severity of wine versus um, Jesus' blood being shed on the cross, Jesus' blood being shed is far more important and far more bigger of an issue than this wedding feast and this couple being shamed. Jesus' death will provide far more than just what wine, uh, what wine will provide at a wedding and saving this family from being shamed. And Jesus, likewise, doesn't work according to our timetable, to our comforts, to our desires, to our wants. Rather, he works according to the Father's timeline. And this is something I think where we need to really understand is that We're not as important as we think we are. Or our situations are not as important as we think we are. Or think it is. And this wine running out at this wedding feast, it's a big deal. Yes. Your situations you might be going through, your stressful worries, these are big. But God is bigger. And these are nothing in comparison to Him. And you see, what we learn from this story is that there is no favoritism of status from Jesus. Jesus does not look upon His mother and go, Yes, yes, mom, I submit to you. No, God's authority supersedes his own fleshly mother's authority. He says, there's someone far more important than you, mom. That is my heavenly father, and I submit to him. And likewise, we all have someone that supersedes the authority of our bosses, supersedes the authority of our parents, our family members, our situations, and that is God. You know, Mary, regardless, she approaches Jesus and she asks him. And I think that's the first step. We need to approach 
Jesus because he's our only help in desperation. But let me tell you this. You might be stressed about your job, all your kids, maybe your future, money, whatever. God is far more important than these things. And it's very important that it's very uh, to almost zoom out of whatever situations we might be going through, whatever worries, whatever things cloud our minds, and to approach God in a way where we're saying, Lord, I entrust these unto you. And I don't need it my way. I want it your way. And that's why it's very important to go in God in prayer that lines up with this will. Um, likewise, if you look at Luke 11, Jesus also, it kind of shows how he shows no favoritism. He says these things. Um, a, a woman in a crowd, she raised up her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus responds to this uh, lady kind of protesting to him. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and they keep it. He's trying to teach her, uh, it, yes, you have a point, but you know what's way more important than these moms that nurse? Yes, they are important. But those that listen to God's word, those that value him and put him first in their lives, blesses that person. So again, God supersedes all authority in our lives, and so we have to approach in prayer that puts his authority above ours by lining up with this will. And that's the second thing that we need to do, is we need to submit to God's sovereignty. In verse 5, Jesus' mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever. Uh, I, I think this immediately shows that she submits to God's sovereignty. Um, how do I know this? Because immediately, I think she was placed, uh, uh, she was put in her place. She dropped the issue completely with Jesus, and she immediately trusts the matter to Jesus. She approached first in uh, verse 3, she approached Jesus actually as a mom, son, we need help. Can you do something? Wine is gone. Jesus rebukes her in uh, verse 4. And now, what is she doing approaching Jesus? She's approaching Jesus. She's submitting to her own son. But ultimately what she's doing, she's submitting to God the Father. She goes, you're right. Who am I to tell you what to do? Who am I to dictate the timing of the Lord? You're right. I, I place this in your hands. Again, how do I know? Because of her attention away from Jesus, she places it on the service and she tells them to do whatever Jesus tells them. What is she ultimately saying? She's saying, she's not saying, hey, Jesus is going to solve the issue. You guys just listen to him. She's saying, ultimately, if he says anything, you do it. You listen to him. Uh, you don't have to listen to me anymore, but you obey this guy. Ultimately, what she's doing is, She's relinquishing her worries. She's releasing all control of this wedding and saying, whatever happens, this is the Lord's will. And I'm now just trusting in you, my son, in you, my God, and I'm giving you control over the situation. What are some things that you worry about in your life? Right? What are? I, I think when we view... Um, our situations with our own fleshly eyes, I think our problems seem way bigger than what they are, right? But when we, desi- when we decide to put, God's, uh, put it in God's hands and we begin to trust and to see how these problems aren't as big as we thought they were and to let God be in control, I think we begin to see, we begin to trust Him and our worries begin to diminish. So in our moments of our chaos, We've got to submit to God's sovereignty by allowing him to be in control. 
We might not have our prayer answered uh, in the ways we desire it to be. But regardless, what our duty is to trust in Him, even if we don't understand. And that's what submitting to God means. It means we don't have it our way, nor do we even understand why they are the way they are. It means we accept whatever happens. And many of us, we are going through maybe some situations that we don't understand. That many of us will not ever have an answer for. And maybe we can beg God and be like, why is this happening to me? Why are we financially struggling? Why are we losing our jobs? Why are we losing family members? Why now? Well, submitting to God means sometimes we don't have to understand. Of saying, God, I submit to you because you are God. And I'm not God. You're in control, and I'm you. And I trust in you, and I submit to you, God. Thirdly, another guidance in terms of how we can overcome our worries is striving to obey God with excellency. Verse 6, it says this. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish uh, rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Um, If you calculate all the amount of water that they're actually filling, this is a lot, a lot of water. Um, The the size of these uh, stone jars that they're using uh, is about the size of, if if you know, like these standard size, like large uh, trash cans, is about that size. Okay, so imagine like this, you know, like this huge thing. Those are about 32 gallons. Uh, these jars are between 20 to 30 gallons. There's a lot of uh, jars and um, you know, things to be filled with water. Times by six, that's anywhere between, uh, scholars are thinking, 120 to 180 gallons of water. Okay, A lot, a lot of water. And so, uh, real quickly, just a side note, what are these jars for even? like, Why are they even at this wedding? Uh, what's the purpose of these jars? Well, there's actually some significance to these Jewish ceremonial jars. Um, these were, uh, according to the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, written in the Old Testament, for people to cleanse themselves, right? If you, were, uh, if you sinned, if you did anything that, uh, against what was written in the law, you were marked as unclean because you broke the law. And so what, what did you have to do? You had to first wash yourself and then make a sacrifice. And then that allowed you to be clean, which means you are now in good standing before the Lord. And if you are still unclean, uh, you are unable to approach God, especially in his temple, to worship. Um, And and we see this later on uh, in our story about even like a bleeding woman. Um, She was marked unclean her entire life um, because of her bleeding. And um, she couldn't approach God. And so this is a very serious thing. And um, the reasons why they had it at a wedding feast was before uh, people entered into the feast, they actually all washed their hands. And so these jars were all there um, for them to actually wash themselves and to be clean. And I think it's so cool because these jars, what they actually represent is the Old Testament law, right? The Old Testament culture of how uh, they were living in a law of, uh, uh, under the law of Moses, that you need to abide by these strict things. But we know that Jesus came to save, and he's bringing a law of grace. It's no longer we're, we're under the law of Moses, but we're under a law of grace where it's through his bloodshed. So I think it's really cool that Jesus is using these jars to fill it with wine 
Why? Because I think it's to show us he's going to purify us permanently through his blood. And, you know, I, I think it's really cool because, you know, today we're going to have communion. Every first Sunday of the month we have communion. And what are some things that we symbolically remember his blood? It's the wine. His, and as we, as we drink this, we say, it's Christ's blood shed for you. And we receive this in communion, in remembrance of how we are under this new covenant of grace, under this new covenant of his blood being shed for us. And so Jesus is now replacing this old covenant with the new covenant of the law of grace. And so what's so amazing about this story is these servants, they go above and beyond what was asked of them. Jesus tells them to fill up these jars, but not only do they fill it, they fill it up to the brim, overflowing all the way to the edge of these jars. They go above and beyond what was asked of them. Again, these jars are gigantic. It's a lot of water. And um, let, me, uh, let me just give you some context about how difficult this actually is. Uh, many of you guys know that I, I, I love fish. I have my own fish tank, right? Um, I have two, two tanks at home. I have a 10-gallon and a 20-gallon. Uh, and one of the things, if you're in the fish hobby, that you have to do that's annoying is every week or biweekly, you need to do something called a water change, which means you need to take out a bunch of water and then refill it with water. Not like 100%, but typically like 30% to 50%. Anyway, so for me, that's about five gallons a week, okay? I'll tell you this. I have the privilege of putting my five-gallon tank in my sink, and I have a hose, and I just put that hose in, fill it with water, and I could just leave and be like, yay. And then it typically takes couple of minutes, and it's full. I just got to take this, put some solution in to remove the chlorine, and just dump it in, and I'm done, right? I have that wonderful privilege. But to be honest, that is super annoying for me. It's a lot of work for me. I can't even imagine what it was like for these servants. Let me give you some context of how difficult it was for them. They did not have this wonderful privilege that I had of turning on a faucet and just filling up buckets and just going over. What did they have to do? They got to go to this well, okay? That's just like, we don't know how far it is. They go, they dump their bucket in. And their, their backs, I guarantee you, they're having a killer workout, right? They're, they're pulling it up. Boom, they get these jars. And then they got to walk over to wherever the jars are and dump it. And then repeat over and over again. Now you times that by however many times that, that takes. I guarantee you, it didn't just take 10 minutes, 30 minutes. I guarantee you, it took way more than an hour, two hours. This is over 100 gallons of water. Oh my gosh, my, my back would be dying. I, like, I struggle with just one time five gallons. Okay? Like, uh, Minai knows I often ask her to hold like this uh, colander where uh, as I pour the water, it kind of like siphons the water in a sense where it doesn't like disturb all my plants and stuff. And <laughs> she's the one holding it. I'm like, oh, pouring all this water. But these servants... They're taking all this time, breaking their backs, uh, getting all this muscle fatigue to do this. And I can guarantee you, as they're doing this, there was temptations to think complaining thoughts. Why are we doing this again? Who the heck is this guy? Who is this dude? What are we doing with water? Are, are we out of wine? We, we should start looking for some wine, like start knocking at houses like... See if they got any wine. I'm sure there's like one gallon here, maybe a pint there. We got to get those wine. Otherwise, we're doomed. And I'm sure one of them made a joke like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if he told us to make everyone just drink the wine? 
I can guarantee you that thought at least came once in their mind. You don't. Oh my gosh. Please tell, please. Oh, if he tells us to drink the wine, we're done for. I mean, we're done because, oh, we're, we're the fools that are going to obey him. He, he told us, that even if we blame on him, we're the fools that even believed in him and, and, and did what he told us to do. I mean, we're doomed for. I'm sure all these thoughts went through their minds. But regardless, what do we see? We don't see any of the thoughts. We don't see what was going on. We don't see that they struggle or not. Regardless, what did they choose to do? They just obey with excellency. They don't just go, they don't just do it real quick. All right, this looks about fill, about 99%. They go, you know what? I'm going to just do it. He told me to fill it up. I'm going to fill it all to the brim. It's going to be overflowing. All right, I'll do it. And I don't need to understand why. I don't have to agree with his methods or whatever. I'm just going to do it. I want to ask you, when's the last time you obeyed God to the fullest, to the point of going above and beyond in your life? In your quiet times, in your jobs, maybe in just your overall Christian character of displaying love, patience, kindness, all these different things to your own kids. How about as a parent, as a student, as a child? When have you gone above and beyond to what God has called you to do? These servants, they just met Jesus. They don't know anything about him. But they went above and beyond. Let's strive for excellency as you obey God. And lastly, in terms of guidance and how we can overcome our worries and these stressful situations, is obeying God in faith. And Jesus said to these servants, Now draw some out the water, and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. All right. Uh, the point is this. This master of feast is someone very, very important. Okay? And this goes to show that the fact that they obeyed by giving water to the master of feast, it shows that their obedience is to another level. If you want to know what servant uh, leadership is really like, just look to these servants. They just obey. Yes, sir. You got it. To the master of the feast, you got it. But they all knew what, their, what the consequence was if this master of the feast tastes water. They all knew this means bye-bye for us. This means, I don't know, maybe worst case, maybe death. I don't know. But it's bad news for us. This is, this is not good. This master banquet, you see, is very, very important. We don't know actually a lot about him. A lot of scholars uh, debate about what their role is. But a lot agree that they're kind of like an MC of a wedding or very similar to like a wedding coordinator of a, we- uh, of a wedding. They taste all the food. They kind of taste the wine and they kind of make sure there's enough and they arrange like the seating and they take orders. They're in charge of the entertainment. They give direction to all the servants. They're just kind of like... Um, like the head honcho in a sense. They're the ones in charge. So what do we see? We see that the servants giving this water to, uh, to this guy is it's just completely ridiculous. And, and it doesn't make sense. Why? Because it could bring them shame and dishonor. And not only just to their names, but again, the entire family's lives could be at stake. You know, they could have easily asked Jesus, 
Uh, but if, if I may just ask you real, real quick question. Your name is Jesus, right? Um, why? Like, what, why do you want me to give water? Uh, don't you know we need wine? You do know the consequence. I, I mean, I'm going to obey you, but you, you know what's going to happen to me, right? I'm sure the disciples are thinking, that, like, did I make the right choice of following this guy? I mean, he's about to ruin these guys' lives. Oh, my gosh. They could have easily asked him, are you crazy, Jesus? They're, they're going to get ruined. But what do they do? They obey in faith regardless. They say, yes, sir, you got it. And they just did as they were told. You see, obeying in faith doesn't necessarily mean that we need to understand all the facts, all the details, all the nitty-gritty of everything that God asks us to do. It just means we obey. And I think there's something to be learned from these servants, right? They just meet Jesus, and all they do is obey in faith. I think likewise, we are called to do that with God. There's so many times when I look through the Bible where over and over again, disciples are asked to obey in faith. It doesn't make sense. Hey, Simon Peter, hey, just... Just walk on the water. What? That makes no sense. Nobody could do that. Uh, I've never seen anybody walk on water. Or, hey, why don't you leave your jobs? Come follow me. You want to become a fisher of men? What? You want me to leave my friends and my family? You want me to leave my family business? I'll have no job in... Where are we going? Like, for how long? Over and over again in Scripture, we find that when God tells His people to do something, it makes no sense. It goes against all humanistic logic. Over and over again, we as his people are pressed and challenged to just obey in faith. To say, God, I submit. God, I don't understand. But it's cool because you are God and you are sovereign and I obey you. And so what is the result? The result is simply this in our story. The result is that God's glory is revealed. Our faith and trust in God increases. And I truly believe as a result, our worries will diminish. And our story uh, ends with this. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely and the poor, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The amazing thing is this. Jesus turns his water into wine, right? Um, and there's some huge significance to this. Not only that, but it tastes amazing. And he saves this couple from this grand shame. But you know, uh, it, it's, it's crazy because this master feast makes a pretty good observation. or It's a very good strategy that a lot of these Jewish families did in their weddings. They would serve the best wine first. And then as time progressed, it, it degraded over time, right? This is a good strategy. Why? Because it's an honor and shame society. You bring out the worst wine first, they'd be like, what is this? Shame on them. You know, they can't provide anything good. But you drink this, mmm, this is good. And over time, as maybe you slowly get a little more intoxicated, they're like, oh, this wine's good anyways at the end, right? Um, but you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of restaurants today use this type of philosophy. For example, you ever had Korean barbecue or all-you-can-eat sushi restaurants? You notice that when you order your first round, you're like, man, what is this, Wagyu beef? Like, this is so good. I love this place. This place is amazing. The first round, it's like spectacular. Like, it's so good.
But you notice you keep ordering the same thing over and over again. You're like, wait a second, why is this one frozen? This one tastes a little different. Uh, they're being smart because they want to blow you away with the first bite. And over time, they're like, get out of here, man. You're eating too much meat, right? Um, and so it's a very smart strategy. Um, now, as a side note, actually, some people actually think this is like a joke that the Master of Feast said. Like, this is the best wine ever, right? He drinks the water and he's like, what are you, like, joking with me? And he just makes a joking remark. Um, but I want to quickly dispel that. Because if you make any remark of, of saying that the, you've saved the best wine until the end, I guarantee if anyone hears this, it doesn't matter how much you've drank that day. If you hear that, you're going to be like, I want to try that. If you truly think it's the best wine ever, I want to drink that. For example, if I'm at my friend's house and we just had a bunch of steak and I'm like really full and then one of my friends just gets a second or a third serving, he's like, dude, this steak is amazing. It tastes like Wagyu beef. I'm going to be like, even though I'm dying, like, hey, let, 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 me, let me get one bite. I need to try this. As so I guarantee people at this wedding, like, what? Best wine ever? I want to try this too. And so they're going to have to be like, you're lying. This is water. It's not a joke. And more than anything, what did the servant see? The servant saw the genuine response from the master of the feast. He saw the master of the feast sip it, and literally his mind exploded. And the servant saw that genuine uh, expression on his face. Have you guys ever seen someone taste something and their mind exploded? Uh, for the first time ever, I've seen... Uh, one of our youth students literally mind explode while eating. Uh, I was eating with our brother Sawyer and Jordan last week. We're eating Mexican food, right? And uh, uh, Sawyer ordered a shrimp fajita. And me and Jordan were just like, mm, mm, this, this is good. And I look at Sawyer, and this guy's like this. And I was like, oh, man, like he doesn't like it. I'm like trying to treat him out. Like, Sawyer, what's wrong? You want me to change your order? You, you, is, it, is it bad? And I kid you not, this is what he said. I've never tasted shrimp with such flavor. And I'm like kidding. Every bite he took was like an explosion. It was like, mmm. And I was like, whoa. And he was like right in front of me. And I saw the explosions in his mind. When you see that, you see it's genuine. You're like, wow. Like he could have said that. He could have lied to me. But his face was not lying to me. It was Pure joy and excitement of every bite. He took the longest to finish his food. He was just taking his sweet time. The master of the feast, when he sipped this, it was an explosion. And the servants, they saw this. You can bet when the servants uh, were witnessing this happening, you can almost feel the butterflies in them. Like, here it comes, guys. We're going to die. Right? And he drinks it, and it's like, What? The master feast is like, this is amazing. What's the point? You see, the thing is the groom, he blew it. But Jesus saves him. Jesus didn't let the wine run out. We all, we all fail. We're all helpless. Jesus saved them. And what was the result in verse 11? It tells us, and not only did the disciples believe, but Jesus' glory was revealed. And I think this it's really awesome because it goes in line again with what the purpose of why John is writing this gospel. Chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, it tells us again that this purpose is so that people would believe. The result is that the disciples put their faith and their trust in Jesus and they believed 
And likewise, we too must place our trust in Christ and God in our times of worry. And as we do these things, as we submit to him, God will help us to overcome our worry. You know, the most amazing thing is when we look at this story, we as a church, we are called the bride. And we have the most amazing bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself has provided all the necessary wine for us. We don't have to provide it. He has done that already. It's plentiful for us. He has shed his blood. And it's never ending. It's forever. We can never out the grace of God. He has poured it out for us through his blood. Um, quick side note, by the way. Um, I, I want to make it a note because as we're talking about the focus of overcoming our worry, I do not want to to be misconstrued that it's through wine that we overcome our worries, uh, nor does this passage uh, um, legitimize maybe the idea that, you know, it's, oh, like, you know, some people might look at this passage and be like, hey, see, like, it's okay that we, we like, maybe get drunk at weddings or whatever. Like, maybe, maybe it's okay to use this passage for bringing alcohol to weddings. That's not the point. The point is this, that Jesus brought the best wine ever, and everything before then was inferior. And that's the point. Jesus changes everything for the better. All we need to do is place our trust in him and allow him to be in control over every situation. And that's the thing. We can't control anything, but only God can. And that's the amazing thing is we have a God that we can call upon and approach. You know, it's interesting because at this moment, our church, we're in need of a building, right? And we're almost helpless in that. We can't just go up to a landlord and just grab them and be like, we need a building. We're helpless. Time's running out. September is our last day. You better give us this building or else. There's nothing we can do. We're helpless. All we can do is call upon God. Some of us might be like, I need more money. What are you going to do? Go up to your boss and be like, give me a raise? No. Or some of our family members need healing. We cannot go to these doctors and be like, you better heal this person. A lot of these things are out of our control. There's nothing we can do. But you know who can? We have a God who is able. Let us come to him. Call upon his name. Because the best is yet to come. His wine is the best wine. And again, I'm not saying that he's going to answer our prayers in the way that we desire to be. But I do desire he gives us what is best for us. This was a sign where Jesus' glory is revealed. And I also believe that we also can reveal and be a sign to show his glory in this world, especially in these times of worry and chaos by trusting in God. What an awesome testimony can be when people see us, when we're struggling the most, when we're in this lowest of lows, and we yet rejoice. Um, you know, I was deeply encouraged with, with what Pastor Paul shared last week. And, you know, I know it's a, definitely a rough time for um, their family, but yet... They have chosen to somehow be sorrowful, yet rejoice. What a testimony that is. It is not by their own volition, by their own power. It's not like they just said, okay, let's just rejoice. It's because it is the power of God that is in them. And how much more powerful would it be if we too were a testimony unto others, showing that sign, Jesus' glory upon others, when we too rejoice, when we too trust in God during our times of work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much.
that God, that we are not alone, and that God, that we have you to call upon, that it is through your blood, through your son, death on the cross, that we have now free access to you, our God, have a relationship with you. God, many of us are going through a rough time. Many of us do feel helpless, almost like Mary did at this wedding feast. But Father, we know we are not alone, and we thank you that you are with us every step of the way. Father, I pray that, God, if there's anyone struggling here, may you encourage them, may you bless them, may your hand just be upon them and their families. And I pray that, God, that we, as one church, would continue to reveal who you are in our lives by trusting in you, despite whatever worries and stress comes our way. Father, again, I pray that you would be with our people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.